Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities, which may happen to the body, and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, as, as uh, most of you know, Becky and I grew up here, and uh, so we're not strangers to Parkersburg. And though we were gone for 26 years, as we came back, it was kind of coming back into homeland again. And so there were, we didn't have a curiosity about the place, because you're coming back to a place that you think you know, anyway. And then our friends, the Kunks, moved in and uh, about a year after we did, and they saw this place with different eyes, and then they started exploring. And it wasn't long after they landed that they made it to Blennerhassett Island as a family. And I'm like, okay, I grew up here. I have never been to Blennerhassett Island. And then we were here still for years till I still hadn't been to Blennerhassett Island, and so since I was like, oh, well, I guess it's possible for people to go and come back and all that, I don't know what was in my head, but we finally made it as a family about, a, I don't know, a year ago or so. That was my first time ever making it to Blennerhouse Island. As, as they came to this area, they found places that we didn't know existed. They would visit things for fun, and you're like, no, I've never heard of that place. Um, and, and that's been our conversation for the last, what, five years. I think it's interesting that because we've grown up here, we have a, a particular way of seeing things. We don't appreciate some of the things because we're just simply taking the place and what the area has to offer for granted. Whereas newcomers came with different vision and they saw things as they really are and explored more. Well, this can happen the same in reading scripture. So today we're tying into a, a very, very, very familiar piece of scripture. And I don't want us to take it for granted. I, I want us to be the Kunks and not the Sallies. I don't, want us to, I don't want us to assume that we know all there is to know here about this passage. I want us to look at it with fresh eyes and see what the Lord has in store for us. Now, the Lord's Prayer has been, uh, yeah, it's been taught on. The, all the, the early church fathers taught it. Uh, through the Reformation, it was taught It's all in all the catechisms. Uh, we say, say it every week as we do communion. Um, if you do the daily office readings and you were actually following the prayer book or one of the apps for the prayer book, chances are good you pray that prayer on a daily basis. So our familiarity or our, our, uh, our knowledge of it, our, our, our understanding of it is there and it is very familiar to us. And so I want, us to cha- I want to challenge us to look with fresh eyes at this old text. Um, one of the things that we see in this one is it's, it's different than the way we pray it. It's different than Matthew's version. And I think that tells us right off that Jesus had a form for us to pray through. And it wasn't necessarily something that he expected to be recited word for word as we do. Now, I have no objection in reciting it word for word as we do. That's why we do do it. But there's, there's something in here that he wants us to see. He wants us to pray for different categories, and he's teaching us how to pray. So this, this prayer becomes a pattern for us for all of our prayers. So what I want us to see today is our Christian hope is cultivated as we pray to our loving Father in heaven and make our requests known to him. This is the Lord's lesson in prayer for his disciples. So to start with, 
Um, we need a personal cry from the heart. Verse 11 is, or verse 1 in chapter 11 is where we're beginning. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So we're going to divide this in, in the, the prayer. We're going to divide these four verses into two sections. And one is pointing toward God, and the other one is pointing outward. So it's an interesting thing that even the prayer, the Lord's Prayer that he's teaching, and the, the model for praying, is patterned even like after the Ten Commandments, after the law. The law which shows the character of God. At first, we're seeing God and our, our relationship to him. That's what those uh, first four uh, commandments show us. And then the next set of commandments shows how we relate to each other. And so in our prayer, we're praying that same way. So this is not a, this is not a strange or unusual pattern. And to begin with, we're going to just look at simply the word Father. Because the, after, after he says, and um, when you pray, say. So as, as it starts there, it's, he, he just says, Father. That would be your name. He's, but we're going to look at Father. Because this is an abrupt start. It's, it's, it's more of an abrupt start than Matthew's version which Matthew's version says, our Father in heaven, which is abrupt enough, but, but this one, it, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's getting right to the point. I, I, I have had friends who uh, would comment on the way I would email them. Um, I would email, and I would get right to the point and ask a question. And they're like, no, hey, how are you, or anything. And I'm like, I don't have time for that. I just want to know the answer to my question. And and I, and I think that's what I, we're seeing here. It's, it's, it's Father. It's, it, there's not an introduction. It, there's no warming up. But because of our familiarity, this does not shock us. How else would you address God? You would address him as Father. It would be weird to do that any other way. I've been in a church where uh, they were more progressive, and so they addressed God as uh, parent, at least, if not even like mother or something. And you're like, oh, my gosh. But, but for us, say, who just believe what we read, if Jesus called him Father, we probably should call him Father. There's not much else in our minds about why that should even be weird. It's very familiar to us. But I want, to see, I want us to see the weirdness, the strangeness, the shock of calling a holy God Father. So there's a, there's a big shift from Old Testament to New Testament. In the Old Testament... The writers understood the concept of the fatherhood of God, but not in the way that we do, not in the way that Jesus teaches, not in the way Jesus understood it. Their understanding of the fatherhood of God would have pertained to the corporate aspect. So the the nation of Israel certainly had a father. That was God. And they would address him that way, the writers of the Old Testament, but throughout the entirety of the Old Testament... He's referred to as Father only 14 times. And this is not in that personal way, but it's in that corporate way for the nation of Israel. And I find that, um, whatever, I find that a little odd, as close as like Abraham was, as close as Moses was, where Moses is talking directly to him. Abraham hears right from him. And yet they don't refer to him as my father. 
they kept clear that distinction between creator and creation. They, they kept that very clear. And they guarded his transcendence, that high and lifted up, the otherness of God, which I would say in our day, sometimes we could exercise more effort in guarding his otherness. I think I, I've, I've, I get casual in my prayers. I think there's times where I've been in corporate prayer or a group praying, and hey, yeah, thanks, God. Uh, it, and it's, it's a lot like talking to your buddy. There's a, there's a sense in which that's sweet, but there's a sense in which are we talking to the one who's high and lifted up? So the, the Old Testament people had such a respect for that otherness of him that they combined two words even to address him. So, so Jehovah is a combination of Adonai, a name for God, and Yahweh. So as not to speak even of him directly, they combine these two to come up with Jehovah, and that, again, guards his otherness, guards that transcendence. Now, perhaps you have seen people today who might write like G space D in that same kind of effort. Um, it's, not, it's not that they don't think we have vowels, and, and, and in the Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, they didn't even have vowels. And so there are guesses, actually, to the when we say Yahweh, there, the consonants actually are there, but the vowels are not. And then later somebody puts the vowels in. When somebody writes today, as if there's maybe, I've seen these comments on Facebook, and uh, you know I would have weird Facebook feeds as far as that goes, but I, I've seen these in comments, I've seen them in writings and, and, and such, where people would have a capital G space, or a dash D. And, it's, and again, it's not that they don't understand consonants, they don't, it's not that they don't know it's an O, but it's this effort, just that very little thing, it's in the effort to say, he is high and lifted up, and we're not going to call him directly by name. We're not going to even spell his name out. So this kind of thing does happen, but it's, it's that kind of distance that this fatherhood had in the Old Testament. Jesus calls God Father over 60 times just in the Gospels alone. I find that just, okay, this is a drastic shift from 14 times out of the 39 books in the Old Testament to, to the, uh, to the, to the uh, 60 times just in the Gospels and Jesus referring to God that many times as Father. He teaches that God is, yes, the corporate Father, but he's also, this brings it down to a very personal level, um, that he's, as Jesus says, he's my father and your father. It's, it's rather beautiful in what he is doing. We're familiar with it, so it doesn't surprise us. This is our expectation. I should also say that we hear a lot in general conversation, or what, and, and, and if, you, if you have conversations at all about faith with people, uh, you'll hear people say, that all, everybody, all, they're a child of God. And we could be talking about the most heathen kind of people, and they're referenced as ch children of God. And 
I, I like to bring correction to this because that's just not true. There's a sense in which, because of God the Creator, all human beings are created in God's image, and therefore out of that uh, creation, there's kind of a, a fatherhood aspect in that sense. But this thing where everybody are, are God's children is just not so. It's, it's just not clear uh, in the Bible. What is clear in the Bible is those whom he calls his children are those whom he has called, regenerated, justified, adopted, and is, has either sanctified or in the real term it's, he has sanctified and is, for those who are alive, still sanctifying. But, or in short, it's those who have come to him through Christ through repentance and faith. So who are the children of God? Well, they are those who came to him by repentance and faith. So I, I, I just have to have that little correction out there as, our, as, as we're trying to get this to a personal level and understanding it. There's a uh, German theologian called uh, Joachim Jeremias, and he argued that Jesus would have used the Aramaic term of Abba instead of the Greek uh, pater. Uh, for the ter- for the word father. Now, he then says that the, that Abba then goes to even a, a, a more personal level than father. And we've talked about this before in a different context, but uh, Abba represents a a confident familiarity. And I think the, the a close translation for us would be like dad or daddy. Um, you know. The, the, the formal would be father, but most of us might, on a more personal note, call our dad's daddy or dad, and especially as little children. And this is the kind of, this is the kind of closeness and that confident familiarity that that term should represent. Um, he, he argues that he, he, Jesus like in the 60 times throughout the gospel, instead of using, which the Greek in my, in my studies, I can figure out what the Greek is, and the, and the Greek is, is pater. He, he uh, Jeremiah, is saying that likely uh, Jesus would have used the term Abba instead. Which, the point of that is, it brings it to this even more personal level. So, it's, it's shocking enough for that one that's high and lifted up you address him as father, but now if you're just going to call him dad or daddy, that brings it to a very personal level. And if this is what Jesus is doing, in fact, in these texts, if this right here, in, in this case, instead of father, hallowed be your name, if he's saying Abba, if he's saying daddy, then this would have really been a shock to those hearers. This would have been a shock to those disciples because they were used to protecting and guarding that transcendence of God, and now Jesus is introducing this very, very, very personal relationship. Jeremiah says that Jesus was inviting his followers to use the term Abba, giving them a share in his sonship. His point is that God is not off in a distance, the, you know, the, the Bette Midler song. He, he is not just watching us from a distance. But God is close and near. And, and it's in this very personal kind of relationship. And, and I could spend a great deal of time talking about sonship. It's one of my favorite topics, a theological concept. And it's the flip side of the coin of justification. 
Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we call Abba, Father. I, I think that is absolutely beautiful. This is where our prayers begin. Our prayer starts with the recognition that we have a relationship with a loving Heavenly Father. We can, we can have confidence in our appeal to Him because He cares for us, because He's near, because He cares about even our very, very basic needs. So as we recognize our positions or position as privileged sons and daughters of the Most High God, it's then that we are prepared for the next exhortation, hallowed be your name. But what, is, what does that mean? Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This helps us a good bit here in understanding what it means to hallowed that name. The idea of reverencing his name or trusting in his name is that which is tied to his character. His character is tied to his name. And that's, this, is what, this is what the psalmist is saying. To hallow means to make holy or set apart, to, to revere or reverence. And we are to reverence his name as like Elohim in the creator name of God. We are to reverence his name of Yahweh, which is his covenant name. He has many names, actually, throughout the Bible, which you know, we can kind of come up with God, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, um, what, and, what, and Jesus in the Spirit. I think about maybe in our English, that's about all we do. But there, but there's the, there are multiple names for God, and we are to hallow all those names. We're to revere all those names. But in this prayer, what Jesus is talking about is we are to pray and set apart his name and his character of Abba, Father. So we set his name apart by our actions and our lips. It, it's, it's a setting apart and hallowing his name that character that's tied to it in that character that references his fatherhood or our sonship. So we don't misuse his name as the commandment describes, which says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The point is, is that we have a confident, connected, secure relationship with our Father in heaven. The sweet aroma of that relationship should spill out to others around us as we demonstrate a beautiful loyalty of a devoted child to his father as we relate to God in heaven, as we relate to God as our father, as we relate to God, the high and lifted up, the holy one of Israel, as Abba, as daddy. It should be apparent of who to, to whom we belong in the way we speak and the way we live our lives. We should hallow his name. So we've seen that we have to have a personal cry to the Lord from the heart. 
as children of God. And then next we see that we need to know our need. We know our need, and we're going to bring that to the Lord. So verse 3 says, Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. So what are we to pray for? We have categories. We have needs, we have forgiveness, and help in our weakness. Now there's a, a footnote in your ESV Bibles at the end of Daily Bread, which says that that can be translated as, give us each day our bread of tomorrow, which is an interesting concept. That translation becomes more, and there can be more to it, um, to help us understand that we're going to pray for today's needs, but as we pray for the bread of tomorrow, we're praying for spiritual needs, for the bread, for, for, for that, uh, which the bread of tomorrow is going to represent. So that um, when we see that ultimate tomorrow, meaning in heaven, we will see Jesus as the bread of heaven. So Jesus had told his disciples that I am the bread of heaven. And, and there are multiple references to himself as bread. And then he gives us bread to remember him. That concept of a meal. If we're t- speaking of, please Jesus, give us our, our needs for today, but also our needs for tomorrow, the spiritual needs of that ultimate tomorrow will be met as we recognize Jesus in the bread. I think it is just sweet that God cares about our simple needs, the little things. Do you wait to only ask God for big things? I, I, th- this, this resonates with me because and as, as we go to the, uh, our conferences or as our regional gatherings or our uh, synods, I'm personal friends with our bishops, but when we get to those places, they've got like lots of personal friends, and then they've got people that don't really know them but just need time with them. And you're like, you know, I, I give them hugs, and, and, uh, and it would have to be something really pressing for me to take their time because they need, somebody else needs their time more than I do. That's the way I look at it. And do we not do that same thing with God? God, please, take care of these people over here with ginormous problems. But, you know, all I was really needing help with today is making it through the day. They're basic things. I'd like my car to run. I'd like to have food on my table. I'd like to have a job. Do you, do you pray for, to him for those very basic things? Or, or do you hit the prayer list and say, okay, who's, I, today's running short, so I'm just going to go through for whoever is the sickest. I'm going to prioritize these as the most urgent I just think the way we're trained, the way we think, the way, the way our normal life is, the way we prioritize other things in life, that's what we are likely to do with our prayers. But I think it becomes very sweet to understand that God cares about your basic needs. So much so that he says, take those to God. Ask him for those things. I think it's sweet that we don't have to reach some spiritual plane in order to reach out to God, to pray to him. I, one of my uh, dear friends as, uh, after Christ uh, was a uh, British literature teacher in the high school. He's like 16, 18 years older than me. 
mathematically, however it worked, mathematically he could have been my teacher. There was a guy my age who had him as a teacher, and uh, I told him, in, in my life over at South, I failed British literature. Uh, I hated that. Uh, sorry, Karen. I just understood nothing in that class, so I failed it, and I had to take it again. Now, my friend Danny said, if you'd have been in my class, you wouldn't have failed. Now, I thought that was very sweet of him to even think I could keep up with whatever it was. But he was going to make it more interesting, I guess is what's the point. But to hear him pray, because he had a command of language, and I'm just the lube dude from up the street. And you know the breadth of my, my, my vocabulary. And it's broadened since then. Uh, but, you know, I still don't have many more other resources than Johnny Cash in my head. So I'm very limited. But when he would pray... It was just beautiful. It's like this language flowing. It's like, wow. Okay, if I need somebody to pray, Danny, would you pray for me? Because it's going to be beautiful. I know God must hear you. And, and I, I don't mean to, I loved my friend Danny. Um, and I take nothing of that back. But the reality is, is you don't have to be as eloquent as my friend Danny to be heard by God. God says, come to me and just give me what's on your heart. And if you have that limited vocabulary, I'll take what you got. You come to me and give me your requests for your needs. I, I think it's interesting that he is interested in helping us with our needs. I think he's, he cares for his people, that he wants us to be fed. He wants us to be warmed. He wants us to be clothed. But in that, I, it could be that we need help understanding the difference between our needs and wants. But his care is holistic. So he doesn't just care about our spiritual thing. He cares about our physical being as well. One of the things that says to me is, if we are going to exhibit his kind of care, we also need to care holistically. We need to be concerned about the mind, the body, and soul. Not just the soul, but the mind, the body, and soul. His loving character as father is expressed as he asks us to bring our requests to him. For those of you who've had kids, have you ever had times where you think, why didn't you just ask me? I could have helped you. I have those times frequently. I have those times when they succeed. I just think, this is my, this is my area. You're supposed to call me, and you didn't. Katie bought a car. She didn't even talk to me about it. She told us what she was thinking, and then, I don't know, time goes by, and she says, oh, hey, I got a car. I'm like, what? So, and I, she's a very competent, independent woman, but I'm like, couldn't you just let your dad in on this? Because cars were my life. At least make me feel like I'm included. No, she didn't. But I think God would say to us, don't, just come to me. Ask me. But I think the reality is, is that we could ask for just basic things. You know, if, if, if we needed a bicycle for transportation, I think we should ask him for that bicycle. If we needed our car to run, we'd ask him for the car. We could ask him for shoes. We could ask him for coats. We could ask him for rest. Maybe we need to ask him for rest more than anything. Maybe we need to ask him for energy, or maybe we need to ask him for exercise. But what are our basic needs? He cares about these things, because that's the expression of his fatherhood. And then when we come to him and ask these things of our Heavenly Father, we glorify him. I think the question for us is, will you glorify him this week? 
Which brings us to our, uh, the, the next point that we're to uh, pray for. So we have three. Um, we're going to cover two. We have our needs, we have forgiveness, and then help in our weakness. And that's why I had to give you that 30-second sermonette prior, because we're not going to even hit it. And for, and for forgiveness, I think we could have a series of sermons on forgiveness, and it would do us well. But we're going to take about 30 seconds on the topic. I hope the Lord speaks to us through it. Because we all know people who are Christians. And I'm, I'm talking about those who are really Christians. And we all know people who would claim to be Christians and have trouble with forgiveness. But I'm talking about people who are really Christians. So it's not just a show. It's not just something they say. They actually know the Lord, us, and we have trouble with forgiveness. Now, the reality is, if it came natural, I'm not sure we would really need Jesus. It seems that there's this conditional element that Jesus lays out very clearly for us that it's kind of like the law of sowing and reaping. We're to ask him to forgive as we've been forgiven. We, 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 we are to ask him to forgive us as we have forgiven. That's what this says. Now, so I'm already uncomfortable. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you like it, called this a terrible petition. Because if we ask God to forgive us as we have forgiven others with an unforgiving heart, if we're asking this with an unforgiving heart, we're actually asking God not to forgive us. That should bother us. I'm talking about true believers who have recognized their sin against a holy God, having trouble with forgiveness. But the reality is those who are resting in the finished work of Christ, who have embraced this thing called grace, should be, and this, this, is, not, this is not something I'm sort of thinking about, this is not some maybe, if, that's, if that fits you, if, if you are one who has experienced, and I, I don't really care what we call ourselves. I'm talking about really being gripped by grace. If you've been gripped by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you're resting in his finished work, if you cannot be put to shame because you're trusting his righteousness and not yours, then you should be forgiving. You... You should be grace-filled. One of the things I love about the Reformed faith is its understanding of sovereign grace. But some of the most uptight people, some of the most graceless people I know are Reformed people. They're like, we know what's right, and you're wrong. Like, what? what? Yes, you're wrong. Want to try another answer? You're just wrong. That bothers me a little, because I'm thinking, where's your grace? Where is your grace? If you don't believe just like me, you're not saved at all. Is that God's sovereign grace? These things bother me. But it, then it extends to this thing of forgiveness. Because we'd rather be right than forgiving. Y'all ever been in an argument and you've been right? And all you really want to do is prove how right you are? That's my whole life. But maybe... Sometimes, and, it, and this, is not a, this is not a blanket statement for every time, everything. There are levels of things that I think it's worth standing for, no doubt. Digging your heels in. But is it everything? 
Is it everything? Is it every point we come to, is it worth being right on as opposed to having unity? In our family, I, we've got people who have died holding grudges. It's, it's, their, it's their most treasured possessions are the grudges they hold. They won't let them go. They didn't let them go. Hold on to them forever. And then in stories, as they would talk about the good old days from 19-whatever, they'd be reminded of these things. But what about you? What, what about you? What, what does this petition do to you, for you? Is it a blessing or is it a curse for you today? We need to forgive. We forgive others for the good of our own souls. That bitterness that resides deep within us can cause all kinds of effects, physically, mentally, spiritually. It's a bad thing. We, we, we forgive for the health of the church. And, I, you know, and, and in our individualistic world, you know, what do you all care whether I've forgiven person who hurt me and if you're in the seat saying you know you might be asking the same thing but the reality is is the health of the church depends upon its ability to forgive and, and again and again this is not like something that if if you get around to it this this is not like eating broccoli you get around to it you ought to eat some broccoli no i can make it the rest of my life still never eat broccoli that's not what he's saying about this this is not an optional thing this is a real thing this same th- something we need to practice we need to be able to forgive and for the church has grown weak because of unforgiveness. It's lost its witness. So the reality is, too, we forgive for the good of the world. We forgive for the good of the world. It's, it's us, the church, you being the church, that are witnesses to the unbelieving world around you. And as we practice forgiveness in real, practical ways, we exhibit the nature of Christ to those who do not know him. How could you forgive that person when they hear the story? And if you'll remember last week, and it was a side point, I just said that in reality, when we understand our, the, the depth of our sin, we know the distance between us and the shooters of the mosques is very little. Very little. In, our, in our world as we measure things, it's great. Because I'm a really good guy. You know, it's what people around here would say. But comparing to a holy God and the depth of my sin, which the Bible clearly points out for me, I recognize that but for the grace of God, there go I. There go you. You could be the shooter of the mosques. So who is it that's wronged you? What distance is there between you and the person who's wronged you? It's easy for us to be in a crowd and think, I'm not like them. You know, about, about all I can thank God uh, in this situation is I'm not like them. And in that case, I say thank you for coming to church today because I'm telling you you're just like them. It comes out in different ways. But whatever that group was, you're just like them. Whoever that was that hurt you, you're just like them. So who is it that you need to forgive? Is it a, is it a parent? Is it a child? Is it a spouse? Is it a business partner? Is a of an employer or an employee? Is it a church or is it a pastor? Do it now. Do not wait. Act on this forgiveness now. Make a commitment to God that he would guide you into that forgiveness. 
whether the one who wronged you is dead or alive, whether the one who wronged you is local or distant, whether you could go them, to them directly or not, you need to forgive the one who wronged you today. Today. It has been said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free, only to find that prisoner was me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.